Well, good morning again, dear ones. Uh, it's good to be back with you again on the first Lord's Day and the year of our Lord, 2019. So if you have your Bibles uh, with you, if you haven't got them open by now, open them to Exodus 14. We're going to consider this morning from the 15th verse through the end of the chapter. Now, I'm not going to reread this section because Elder Marty just read it. Uh, but before we study it together, let's pray and ask for God to help us understand and believe and obey His Word. Let's pray. <laughs> our Lord and our God, we thank You for this Word for us today, this grand display of the redemption of Your old covenant people, a foreshadowing of a redemption to come in the exodus of our Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem so many years later. We pray that as we study it this morning, we would do, do so with the eyes of faith and with hearts of praise and indeed see afresh the great hand of the Lord in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a little background to this morning's, this familiar text. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, it's the crossing uh, of, at the Red Sea. You know, after 430 years as slaves uh, to the Egyptians, the Israelites' exodus out of Egypt, it began with great joy, began with great expectation, great excitement. The people were now on their way to the promised land. And they're being led in God's providential kindness, not, not by the shortest way uh, of the Mediterranean Sea along the coast road, Toward Canaan, you know that was a route that was uh, would have led them in direct conflict with mighty armies and Egypt uh, and enemies. Egypt had really defended that particular road. Instead, in His kindness, God took them a different way, took them a longer way into the desert. But we're going to see that that way had its own challenges because in the first fourteen verses of chapter fourteen. We're going to find that the Lord actually turns them back a different direction after they had made their way out of Egypt and are making their way toward the wilderness. He turns them back, we're not sure, probably in a southeastward direction, and he plants them precisely in a situation where, from a military perspective, they're actually hemmed in. Now, if you would have been one of Moses' lieutenants, you might have questioned his leadership abilities at this point and said, you know, sir, we're sitting ducks here. We have no place to go. There's a body of water to our back. The watchtower cities of Egypt are in front of us. If the Egyptian army follows us and overtakes us, which they surely will, we have absolutely no place to go. And so suddenly in that setting... All the joy and all the expectancy turns to an unraveling sense of doom among the people of God. And as we see here, they resort to form, much like we often do. They once again began to grumble. They began to cry out to the Lord, and they began, began, to, they began to complain against Moses. 
And it's in that desperate context, if you will, that we now find the Israelites in the last part of chapter 14 that Marty just read. You know, that tight squeeze that the Israelites find themselves in here, it reminds me of a similar situation that the British and the French armies found themselves in the beginning of World War II. On the 27th of May, 1940, over 400,000 troops of the British Expeditionary Force and the French Army, they were trapped with their backs to the English Channel, surrounded on three sides by German panzer divisions and other infantry ground troops. Winston Churchill, the King's first minister, speaking to the House of Commons, He called the situation a colossal military disaster, saying that the whole root and core and brain of the British Army had been stranded at Dunkirk. On the 26th of May, the day before, a National Day of Prayer was declared for the deliverance of the British and French troops throughout the United Kingdom. King George VI, attended a special service at Westminster Abbey and churches across the UK cried out to God on behalf of these trapped soldiers. Then on the 27th of May, the next day, Churchill ordered Operation Dynamo into effect. And several warships made the crossing multiple times under enemy fire, rescuing troops from Dunkirk Harbor to safety in England. Nevertheless, many thousands of troops were still stranded on the longest beach in Europe, on the beaches of Dunkirk, and they were unable to be reached by the deep draft warships of the British Navy. And so a search was made around the United Kingdom, and 700 civilian vessels with shallow draft were enlisted, small fishing boats, lifeboats, riverboats, pleasure boats, paddle steamers, private sailboats, private yachts. 700 of them with civilian crews made the crossing back and forth under strafing fire from the Luftwaffe overhead. The little ships of Dunkirk, as they came to be called, helped to rescue in the end 331,226 Allied soldiers from the German advance, which for reasons that are unknown even to this day, Hitler inexplicably halted just short of Dunkirk, even in the face of almost no Allied resistance. Churchill speaking to Parliament on the last day of the evacuation, June the 4th, He gave his famous, we will fight on the beaches speech, in the course of which he declared the Dunkirk operation a miracle of deliverance. A miracle of deliverance. And it's to a situation not all unlike that one that we turn our attention this morning, and we look at the action here in the second half of Exodus 14. 
So look there with me as we work our way through this. The Israelites, too, were trapped with their backs to the sea with the equivalent of panzer divisions. You know, they had the elite chariot troops of Pharaoh bearing down on them. You know, from the vantage point of the fleeing Israelites, you know, this whole situation, it had to have seemed like a terrible tactical blunder on God's part. For putting them there. Remember, it was God. Look back at chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. It was God who, who told them to turn around and head back to camp between Migdal and the sea. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. It was God who did this. He was the one who put them in this mess. To them, it was a colossal military disaster, to use Churchill's phrase. But as God made clear to Moses here, however strange it may have seemed at the time, however terrifying to watch the Egyptians take up their positions before these terrified Israelites, even in this impossible situation, God's strategy was being worked out. This was God's strategy. This was God's Operation Dynamo Plus. Why do, I, why do I say plus? Well, you know, the deliverance of the troops at Dunkirk, we know, merely avoided the annihilation of the Allied armies trapped there on the beaches. You know, in fact, Churchill had to remind the elated British people that this was not a victory. The British Army actually lost every single piece of their equipment at Dunkirk. This wasn't a victory. This was merely an escape, a deliverance. And that's how that deliverance was different from this deliverance of the Israelites. The plan of God for the Israelites at Migdal was much more, much more than simply an escape. God's salvation is never simply a miracle of deliverance from disaster. It is that, but it's also a miracle of victory. It's a victory. And so Exodus 14, 15 to the end of the chapter, I think teaches us very clearly about the nature of God's salvation, the way in which the Lord fights for his people, the way he delivers and saves and, and rescues them and triumphs on their behalf. And so this exodus of God's people from Egypt, it becomes the archetype, the model. It becomes the paradigm, if you will, in the rest of Scripture for salvation, for God's saving work. So that the supreme deliverance that God provides, the deliverance from our sin by the cross of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ is itself literally called Jesus Exodus by Dr. Luke over in Luke 9.31. So, hear me. If you don't remember anything else, I'm pounding the pulpit here. All right? When we study this passage today, we're not simply considering a remarkable historical account of escape from danger against all odds, 
much like this account of the deliverance of those armies at Dunkirk. No. We're being confronted in this passage with the wonders of the gospel of God's saving grace itself. Dear ones, here's the good news that God loves to save people. He loves to save his people in all circumstances. And so I want to highlight uh, for you this morning four things about God's salvation from this, pa- from this passage. There are four big chunks, if you will, on the outline in your bulletin. So if you have that, uh, that outline should be in your bulletin, so look there and follow along. The first one we see in, in verses 15 through 18 is the glory that God pursues. Now, Moses had been speaking to the terrified people on behalf of God. He told them in verses 13 and 14 that the Lord was going to save them. He said, fear not. This is Moses speaking to the people the words of God. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you only have to be silent. Now just stand there and watch it. But then look at verse 15. Not only has Moses been speaking to the people on God's behalf, it seems he's also been praying to God on the people's behalf. And that was his job. Remember, Moses was the mediator, the go-between. He was God's appointed Savior of his people. He intercedes on their behalf. And he gives expression to their cries for deliverance. That's what he's supposed to do. Or so it seems. But apparently, as we read this text, God had had enough of Moses' prayers. And he says, Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Now, if I would have been Moses... I would have been sorely tempted to say at this point, okay, God, is there something here that I'm missing? Uh, I think it's evident why we're crying out. If you haven't noticed, we're pretty much surrounded by the greatest army in the world on the one side and the sea on the other. We're in a bad fix here. But God apparently has had enough of Moses' prayer, and he says, enough already, Moses. Stop praying. I told you what I'm going to do. I'm going to fight for you. I've given you that promise. So what are you waiting for? Get moving. Saddle up. Now, that's interesting to me. You know, maybe not what we expected. But I think what's happening here, dare I say it, is that God clearly is not pleased with prayer when prayer becomes an excuse for inactivity. Now, isn't that what's happening here? Now, here's Moses. The people had the promises. God had told them what to do. Nevertheless, Moses delays, giving voice instead to these fearful cries of the people. Now, I have found that sometimes... It's easy to let ourselves off the hook from doing our daily duty as Christians so long as we tell ourselves we're still praying about it. Now, we have to be careful here. 
Prayer is good. Prayer is absolutely vital. But I, I do believe that God is not pleased with prayers when they're used as an excuse for inactivity and disobedience. And it seems to me that that's what's happening here. You know, God says there's to be no waiting here. I've told you I'm going to fight for you. Moses, tell the people to pack up and move out. Go forward. Now, I can't help but think of what C.S. Lewis warns Christians about in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Lewis warns us to to be aware that one of the main strategies, one of the main strategies of the devil is to have us live in the future and not simply do our duty in the present moment. So God says enough already. Be silent. Moses, get them moving. Your business right now is faith. And your business is go forward. And of course, that command is also problematic. Moses says, okay, Lord, which way is forward? Is it forward toward the Egyptians or is it forward into the sea? The problem is, there's nowhere to go. God's, God's command requires them to do the impossible, which, by the way, is always the case with the, with the commands of God, with the commands of the gospel. You know, think about it. You know, the gospel says repent, believe. Well, we can't do that. These commands are just as impossible as God's commands given here to Moses. Spoken to deaf ears, spoken to hearts of stone. Those whom God calls to faith and repentance are dead in trespasses and sins. The command of God requires the very thing that you and I have no power to perform. Now, why would God do that? Why tell the Israelites to shut up, to pack up, and to move out when there's nowhere to go? Why call dead, lifeless sinners to turn from sin when it's sin that enslaves them in the first place? Why require faith when faith is unattainable? Well, the next couple of verses tell us here why God does that. Look at verses 16 through 18. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry land. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. What is God's agenda in calling Israel to impossible action? Well, these verses tell us. It's to get glory for himself when he makes a way out for them and he triumphs over their enemies. That's why he does this. He does this to get glory. You know, I think we we can think of many other biblical examples of this. You know, one that comes to my mind, if you recall the story over in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel is preaching, and he's preaching to dry bones. 
if you remember the story. Israel, the, the background, Israel's in exile in Babylon. God commands Ezekiel to preach to this pile of dry, dry bones in this valley. It's a ridiculous command. It seemed crazy. But Ezekiel preaches. He obeys. And you know what happens? The bones get connected. They get flesh on the bones and breath, and they rise up, and they live. And at the end of the chapter, God says to Ezekiel that these bones, they're a metaphor, if you will, for the whole house of Israel, whose bones are all dried up, and their hope is lost in Babylon. And so God says to Ezekiel in chapter 37, verses 12 through 14, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Say to Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Same thing said to Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen and to Israel later on. You know, God, as St. Augustine famously put it, commands what he wills, and he gives what he commands. He commands what he wills. It may be impossible to comply. But God gives grace. He gives what he commands. The gospel requires what we cannot provide. It calls for faith and for repentance, but gives what God requires. And he does that so that all the glory for our salvation from first to last may rest on him, may be to him. And dear ones, that is always, always God's agenda. He is always pursuing his glory. God saves Israel from bondage in Babylon. He saves Israel here to his own glory. He judges Egypt here for his own glory. He saves you and me for his own glory. He does everything he does for his own glory. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You know, our life group over at Rincon Mountain, we just finished a study of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he was a great pastor during the early 1700s in America, and God mightily used him and his sermons during the great revival in the 1700s in America called the Great Awakening. When he was the pastor of the First Congregational Church of Northampton, by the way, that was the second largest congregation in the colonies, and during his time as pastor there, he was invited in 1729 to give the commencement address at Harvard. It's a great honor for him. And Edwards... He, 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 without going into the details, he preached a famous sermon, second only to sinners in the hands of an angry God. And the sermon was entitled, God Glorified in Man's Dependence. God Glorified in Man's Dependence. Get a copy of it. Read it. It's life-changing. You know, just listen to the title and you know what Edwards preached on. 
That sermon stressed the same point here that salvation is from start to finish a work of God. And it is so that God will receive all the glory so that you and I cannot boast about it. God, our text is reminding us, is radically God-centered. And that's a good thing because the radical God-centeredness of God is really the only way for us to avoid the radical self-centeredness to which our hearts naturally incline. You know, I hope you know by now it's not about us. It's about God. What is the chief end of man, the shorter catechism asks? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God saves us so that we might make much of Him not make much of us. So that's the first thing. Then look at the second section in your outline, verses 19 and 20, the division that God creates. You know, the angel of the Lord, Yahweh himself, he's appearing here in a pillar of cloud and fire. It now moves from leading the way ahead of the people of Israel to take up a position behind them. Look at verses 19 and 20. It's complicated language. There are some translation difficulties there. But I think here's the main idea. There's a division between the people of God and the Egyptians designed to preserve and protect the Israelites from the Egyptians. In other words, no Egyptians could get near the Israelites. And no Israelites could accidentally stray into the Egyptian encampment. And you see, this provides the Israelites with all the time they needed to pack up and to escape into the sea. You know, just as the events of the, uh, the Passover had differentiated Israel from Egypt to the disadvantage of the Egyptians, the events of this night also worked against Egypt's interest. The cloud of God's presence keeps the Egyptians on one side in dreadful darkness, while on the other side, this pillar of fire gives the Israelites the security of light, supernatural floodlights, so to speak, to brighten the darkness. You know, it's very interesting. The New Testament repeatedly uses that imagery of light and darkness, maybe even drawing from this very moment in Israel's history as a way to describe the implications of belonging to the people whom God saves. Those whom he saves, he makes to dwell security in the light of his presence. Ephesians 5, verses 6 through 8. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In 1 John 1, verses 5 through 7. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Dear ones, to belong to the covenant community, to belong to the church, 
to belong to Desert Springs Presbyterian Church through faith in Jesus, the people whom God saves. That means to live in the light of the presence of God, in the protective presence of the light of God. You know, there's no way to live in darkness and belong to the Israel of God. You know, either we're Egyptians, so to speak, still in darkness, ultimately facing his wrath and displeasure, or we're members of the community that God saves by grace. And we live in that light. God makes a separation between the church and the world, between Egypt and Israel, between his people and those who reject his rule. And Christian, you can't live in both camps. You can't belong to God's people and live like an Egyptian. You can't serve two masters. Well, the third thing to notice here in verses 21 through 29 is the mediator that God honors. Back in verse 16, God had told Moses, if you recall, to lift up his staff, stretch out his hand. Divide the sea so that Israel might escape. And now in verses 21 and following, Moses obeys that instruction. The sea piles up, notice, creating a wall of water on either side with this clear path through its middle in order for the Israelites to make their escape, verses 21 and 22. And Pharaoh, of course, gives chase, says here that his heart hardened, filled with malice. He won't let the Israelites go. He gives chase just as morning breaks, and it's just then that the Lord throws them all into confusion. The wheels of the chariots mire down in the mud and the sand, verses 23 through 25. Let me just pause here for a second and make a soldier's observation. Uh, you know, these divided waters of the sea... They should have given Pharaoh and his army commanders pause. You know, being familiar with Exodus, uh, you know that it wasn't as if this was the first time Yahweh had acted dramatically on Israel's behalf and against the enemies, uh, enemies against the Egyptians. Think about the ten plagues. These were experienced, battle-hardened soldiers. You know, these were... Pharaoh's panzer divisions, so to speak. And I guarantee you that there were many Egyptian charioteers who were muttering under their breath as they were ordered into this seabed. The old man is losing it. You know, this is wrong. I have a very bad feeling about this. This cannot end well. So Pharaoh's army obeyed him. They give chase into the sea, looking, I'm sure, with much concern at these two walls of water piling up on each side of them with their chariots sinking down into the mud and the mire and the sand. Verse 25, And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. In other words, come on, boss, let's get out of here while we still can and once more, Moses is commanded to lift up his staff over the waters. Look there at verses 26 through 28. You know, notice just as an aside, just as 
down a little rabbit trail. The destruction of Egypt, it takes place at dawn, verse 27. When Ra, that was the sun god of Egypt, that's when Ra returns to power, supposedly. And here again is the Lord exposing Egypt's gods for the empty idols they really are. He, he, he shows that by destroying the armies of Egypt. And we see that all this is done not by Moses, not by his prayer. God told him to stop praying and move out. Moses was the obedient mediator by his actions. But it was the Lord's doing. The Lord had bound together the salvation that he would bring about to the obedience of his servant Moses. So that as Moses obeyed, the people were saved. It's, it's extraordinary. But it is, of course, a picture of how God delights to save sinners everywhere by means of the greater than Moses, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Moses is often compared and contrasted in the Bible to Christ. Hebrews 3 is a, comes to mind as one good example. There Christ is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. He is the mediator of a better covenant than Moses. Christ's salvation is perfect and complete, to whom Moses' actions here point us. Jesus didn't lift up a staff. Instead, he was himself lifted up. He was nailed to a cross, there to win deliverance, to win salvation for us. There at the cross... God's victory over death and judgment was secure. There a people were ransomed from every tribe and language and nation. There God acted, and believing that, you and I are saved. And so just as this passage focuses our eyes on the obedience of Moses, so now also. The gospel to which this passage points us directs our gaze to the obedience of Jesus Christ, the mediator whom God honors. As he acts, we are saved. So finally, let's quickly look at this fourth thing in verses 30 and 31, the salvation God provides. Look there quickly at those verses. A couple of things stand out here for me. First, did you catch the emphasis here in verse 30 on the divine initiative? Thus the Lord saved Israel that day. See, here is the theology of Exodus in a nutshell. Here are the cliff notes. The Lord saved Israel, and he saved her completely. He saved her totally to the uttermost. Look around. Her enemies lay dead behind her. The promised land lay before her. Israel didn't, or Israel didn't even lift a hand. Egypt, the powerful nation that had sought to drown the baby boys of Israel, had seen her vaunted army drowned instead. No, think about it. The situation was impossible. Dunkirk all over again. Israel had no hope of securing for herself an escape from the attack of the Egyptian army. Israel was doomed. 
Yet God ordered his own Operation Dynamo. Made a way. He saved them. It was unlikely. It's improbable. It's even unlooked for. Through the flood to safety. Now isn't that how we might also describe the cross? Unlikely. Improbable. Unlooked for. That God would use a cross. A Roman torture machine. And there impale his son, utterly rejected by everyone. This wretched, broken, unknown, denied, hated, mocked figure, the Savior of the world, come on. Not very likely. That he would use the wounds of Christ to be the deliverer of everyone who came to him seeking mercy. It's extraordinary. It's the divine initiative. God using improbable means to accomplish mighty salvation. God has made a way and he has made a way by the wounds of his son. How improbable is that? The divine initiative. And then secondly, I want you to notice as we close here, take a look at the response of the people here. As Exodus 14 announces God's commitment to his own glory, announces his commitment to separating out for himself a people distinct from the world, his commitment to doing so by means of a mediator. Take a look here at how these people respond. Verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And what that says to me, and I think what it should say to you this morning, is that seeing the salvation of the Lord has to provoke a response. You can't be the same, surely, when you see the crucified man of Calvary. How can you be unchanged? It calls for a response. And what should that response be as you look ahead to I know there are going to be many uncertainties in the year 2019. Well, the response should be like the Israelites. Fear the Lord. Believe in the Lord and in his servant, the greater than Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can rescue you, the only one who can be your deliverer. It's to tremble before him, recognizing his majesty, his sovereignty, recognizing that if he does not act to rescue you, you will not be rescued. It's to tremble and reverent all and to cast yourself completely, all your hope, all your confidence, all your trust, all your faith on Jesus Christ. See, that's the response to which Jesus is calling us today as we stare 2019 in the face. The glory God pursues. God is radically God-centered. Dear ones, that can, that can free us absolutely from the endlessly repeating loop of narcissism and self-obsession to which our hearts instinctively incline. It's not about us. It's about Him. It's about His glory. The division that God creates to belong to the people of God is to live in the light, not to walk in darkness. 
You can't serve two masters. Walk in the light. The mediator God honors. He has appointed Jesus Christ, his only son, by whose obedience and blood he has made a way. He has made a safe path for our salvation. And the salvation that God provides, it's his gift of sheer grace to us. Take it into this new year and do that in holy fear and in joyful faith. Lord, make it so in every heart this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, some of us here today are looking for a hundred things to do, some great act or some persistent pattern of obedience that will win your favor. Some of us despair of ever finding acceptance before you and rule ourselves completely out. And you respond to our misunderstanding by pointing us to the astonishing reality the surprising work of your grace in providing a cross to be your means of deliverance, offered as a gift for free to all who come seeking mercy. Help us, every one of us, as we bow before you now, to run back to the cross and to accept in awe and fear and joyous trust the deliverance only Jesus can give. For we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.